the ultimate legacy as we come to uh, the story of Elijah and uh, Elisha this morning. There isn't really a more appropriate title, is there, today? As we think about the legacy that people have left by the way that they lived and also by the way that they died. Father, would you help us as we come to your word to allow it to touch our hearts? Would you speak to us in a way that enables us to respond? Would you allow your word to filter past the filters that we all put in place around our hearts and our lives? And in different ways, would you speak to each one of us? Because we want to be better people. Because we believe that's what you've called us to. And we believe that we're better people only as we understand your work in us, that we might be part of your work through us. We've watched a world that strive to be better and fail. We've watched a world that thinks, well, surely we're making progress when manifestly we are not. So we ask, Lord God, work in us, that you might work through us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, we're at number eight. Hashtag time to uh, rise up. If you've missed some of them, then uh, burlingtonbaptist.org.uk forward slash rise up. We'll get you uh, everything that you need. Uh, a reminder that both the, the messages are there, the PowerPoints are there. Uh, if you're a missional community leader, small group leader, if you're any sort of leader and you're wanting to access that material, it's all there. And of course, if you're simply leading yourself, then that material is also all there for you to pick up on and to journey with. Eight weeks of Elijah. By now, you would agree with me, I think, that Elijah has had a fair bit of experience. He knows one or two things about what it means to live for God in his day. He knows about taking a stand before a pagan king. He knows about learning to trust God in a desert when everything is stripped away. He knows about spiritual warfare and taking on the enemy. He knows about standing up for what is right. He knows about praying in God's promise that it might rain. He knows about working through issues that would cause him depression and despair. Here is a man full to the brim of lessons that he's learned, of experiences that he's gone through. Here is a man who is rich in experience and understanding of both his relationship with God and working that out in the real world right where he is seeing kingdom breakthrough. Agreed? So, the question this morning is this. What is he going to do with all that God has given him? What is he going to do with all of that experience, with all of that knowledge, with all of that understanding that God has given him and led him through. Elijah will do what every disciple is called to do. He will pour his life, all that he's learnt, all the wisdom he's obtained, all the experiences that he's known, and he will pour those things into the next generation. Elijah will pour his life into Elisha. 
When I get to heaven, one of the questions is, why did you give them such similar names? Because it's tricky to remember who's who. Elijah's legacy will be another one like him. In fact, arguably, Elijah's legacy will be another one better than him. Elisha will build on Elijah's foundation. Elisha will get to stand on Elijah's shoulders. He will go further, reach deeper, be stronger, stand taller, wider. Because Elisha will not start at base one, Elijah will have the brilliant opportunity of starting where, or carrying on where Elijah leaves off. The ultimate legacy is to reproduce in others what God has given to us. That they might be stronger and greater. That they might go deeper and higher. Jesus did that. That's what he expected. He said, truly I I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. That's been my goal, says Jesus, to reproduce my life in you, to share with you what I have been given. And because you will build on my foundation, because you will be standing on my shoulders, I expect that you, Jesus says to his disciples, will see greater kingdom breakthrough than I have seen as a human being. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? No, 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 you've not understood if you, that's not just in so many ways an utterly mind-blowing idea that what Jesus has, he would invest in those disciples and because they would build on his foundation, stand on his shoulders, he expected them to see greater kingdom breakthrough than he himself had seen. Question, what has God given you that must be multiplied in others? What has God given you that must be multiplied in others? What has God given you that must be multiplied in others? Jesus told a parable that makes very clear that the master, the father, has given gifts that he's looking to see multiplied. It's the principle of multiplication. Hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. And often when we read the parable, just to summarize it quickly, the master gives three people uh, a bag of gold each, and he says, I'm going to come back. I want you to have multiplied it. And two guys go off and multiply it with varying successes, and one guy sticks it in the ground. When the master comes back, the master says, well, here's your gold. I was a bit frightened. I didn't know what to do. So anyway, have back what you've given. Uh, I hope you'll be happy with that. And the master's furious really strong words on the lips of Jesus that the, the, the third guy is only giving back the same thing that he himself had been given, that multiplication had not taken place. But often when preachers, and, and I'm one of those, speak about this, we, we talk about, have you got a gift, a talent that you've buried in the ground? 
And we talk about how, you know, the master might come one day, so you better get that gift, that talent, and shake it off and get on and start using it. Well, that's a jolly good point, and you ought to do that. But I think there's a deeper meaning here. If we scratch a little deeper, what do we discover as we think about it a little further? The third man has kept his talent safe. He didn't lose it. He didn't destroy it. He didn't leave it to rot, whatever he did. He was confident that the same talent would still be there to give back to his master after however many years it would be. True? If you don't use a gift or a talent, you are not keeping it safe. You're letting it rot. True? If you do not use what you've been given, it will rot. It won't stay just like it is as a gift. It will begin to rot and to deteriorate. That's worse than simply putting it in the ground. At least when the master came back, the third man had the gift intact as he had been given it. It had not rotted or deteriorated. And he says, here it is. So it might be better uh, to... Let me start again. Okay. So the third man that comes back, he is... uh, He's kept his gift safe. The only way I know to keep your gift safe is to keep on using it. Isn't that true? Unless you use the gift, you will not keep it safe. So the third man, effectively in our story, keeps his gift safe. Just like you might be feeling good about keeping your gift safe because you use it. But Jesus says some very harsh words to that third man, doesn't he? It's decidedly uncomfortable when it gets to that stage in the story. Why? Because the third man, this is the point, had not multiplied his gift. He simply kept it safe. Let me tell you a story of my failure, which you might think is a success, but as we measure it against the parable... It gets a little uncomfortable. I've been preaching for 31 years. And I know it's hard to imagine. I was preaching in the womb, best sermons going on in there, and just coming out, several series in by the time we got into the labor, uh, labor room. 20 of those years, at least, I've preached most weeks. Over that time, one or two of you have been gracious enough to say, that on occasions you've heard God speak. Now, to be honest, that still freaks me out and blows my mind. And there is no greater privilege. It's hugely humbling, more than perhaps you imagine that it might be. So I've used the gift, such as it is. This is all I've got. It's as good as it gets. This is me. If you don't like it, feet for the street. You're doing a fantastic job outside. Take you ten minutes to the soft play around the corner. Other things going on this morning. Um, God bless you. So, I've kept the gift safe. But I have not multiplied it. It's still one gift and one person. Arguably, a few exceptions maybe, arguably I failed in 20 years to multiply what God has given me. In fact, if I'm honest... I've not particularly tried to multiply the gift. And when God says to me, I gave you that gift of preaching, what did you do with it? I go, every Sunday, God, here we are, look at me. All good, here's your gift, I'm ready to give it back to you. 
And I'll hold my head up high and I'll say, I haven't not used the gift. You make me use it all the time. So I feel good about that. But if this parable is to be believed, there will be other questions the master might ask. So to whom did you pass this gift on? In whom did you multiply it? In whom can we see 50, 60, 100 fold? For whom did you build a foundation that they might go further? On who, who did you allow to stand on your shoulders? Where is the gift now? I tell you, that's a slightly awkward conversation with God today. Do you understand that? Can you understand that's a little uncomfortable? Anyway, no, 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 I think this is the truth. Uh, you're complicit anyway, because you've allowed me to do it for 20 years, so I'm, I'm ready to hold. It wasn't me, it was just them, they made me do it. Okay, so I, I've got my argument all set up, I'm ready to go with it, I'm going to feel good, looking pretty awkward for you now, guys. Okay, we're all in this together. But you understand the point that I'm making? And it, this particular example is an issue, but there are a multiplicity of issues for which this example and this parable might speak into. Now, there are loads of gifts in all of us that are of greater value than my preaching. Absolutely. Character developments, faith journeys, wisdom honed, experiences traversed, revelations received, understanding gained, perseverance pushed through. What are you doing with them? Are we keeping them safe you go, God, I've got it all safe, ready for you. Or are we multiplying these things in others? What has God given you that must be multiplied in others? If you think you haven't got anything, then you are listening to a lie and you are saying the Bible is not true. If you say you have not got anything to multiply in somebody else, you are believing a lie, and you are saying the Bible is not true. For some of us, that might be the most important bit of processing for this morning. You have to square that circle. Either God's true, in which case there's stuff in you to multiply, or God's been conning us, and we don't need to worry. What has God given you that must be multiplied in others? So, where were we? Elisha sets out to follow Elijah. Or is it Elijah that sets out to follow Elisha? Who came first? Very good, very good. You sure? Okay, verse 21. Still got it open in 1 Kings there somewhere. So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Pretty determined, catastrophic turnaround. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. Elisha followed Elijah. That's an interesting word, follow, isn't it? Have you heard that somewhere else? 
Someone else used that word about following. In fact, the model of discipleship that Jesus used, which was the model of Jewish discipleship, has its traditions in these stories of Elijah and Elisha. If you're going to pour your life into other people, if you are going to multiply what God has given you into somebody else, you will have to let them follow you. This goes against the grain. I'd even go as far to say, as for me personally, it goes against every grain within me. Because I've always thought, like the bumper sticker, don't follow me, follow Jesus. Ha ha, boom boom. Have you got a Christian bumper sticker on your car? Special stream of ministry down to my right. If you've got a fish, should it swim that way or that way? Hands up if that way, for the fish to swim that way. Jane, you're on your own. Hands up that way. A few of you going that way. So someone's, okay, all right, interesting. Says something about their uh, Myers-Briggs scores and their politics. Uh. Don't follow me, follow Jesus, has been, in my humble opinion, a catastrophic error that has destroyed discipleship in the local church. A massive error. A massive, massive error that I've made, that we've made. Because we've said, look, hey, and we said it for all the right reasons. For goodness sake, don't look at me. I want you to look at Jesus. Don't, don't look at me and my mess and my failures and my imperfections. Look at Jesus who's perfect and brilliant and glorious. Don't listen to me. Listen to Jesus. Don't follow me. Follow Jesus. It seems so right, and yet we have missed the fundamental teachings of the Bible that people look at Jesus by seeing him in us. That people listen to Jesus by listening to him speak through us. That people learn to follow Jesus by following you as you follow him. People don't need a perfect example, which is just as well, because I've seen you. They need a living one. A living example. This has been really difficult for me. God's been teaching me this stuff for uh, too many years. God's had to work really hard and for a long time for me to get it. It used to drive me mad when I read this verse from the Apostle Paul. Or in the older versions, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, just a top tip. When a verse makes you really angry, the issue's probably with you. Yeah? So, just... In, so, I'm, I'm really... I'm thinking, Paul, what, what an arrogant, big-headed, over-inflated ego. What is this guy on? Look at me! Look at me! If you want to know what Jesus is like, look at me! Look at me! That's what I thought. I thought, Paul, you're screwed up. You were killing the Christians a couple of weeks ago. What's the matter with you, man? Get them to follow Jesus. You haven't got a clue. 
You're messed up. You need forgiveness. You've got thorns in your side. You can't sort yourself out. You keep on going on about your weakness. Come on, man. Until I realized that it's exactly what discipleship requires. People cannot copy what they do not see. If I said this morning, we're all going to draw a face. I want you to draw a face on whatever you've got in front of you. You know, your notepad, because you all take notes, right? Thanks, Donald. <laughs> you all take notes, right? So imagine if I said, draw a face. I just want you to draw a face. Now, there would be all kinds of faces that would get drawn around the room. We'd have all kinds of different faces. Not one face would look remotely like another, probably, apart from some obvious characteristics one hopes. And so here I am drawing my face, and I'm asking you to copy me as I draw my face. How are you you doing with copying my face? It's really difficult because you can't see. But what if I tried to show you what I was drawing? Then you go, stop being impressed with the technology. (laughs) Stop thinking, how on earth did he do that? Look, I'm a genius, we all know that. But, But you could begin to copy that, couldn't you? Even the most unartistic people among you. Look at that. Yeah. Bit of nasal hair, it's my age, you see. No one else got nasal hair? I mean, suddenly from nowhere, boom! Do you notice that? You get up in the morning. It's come from nowhere. I th- I think this particular illustration has gone past its usefulness for this sermon now. So we're just going to get rid of it. But, but, but do, you, do you see what I mean? You can't copy what you do not see. If you want to be a disciple, which means you want to disciple others, you will have to de- make your life deliberately visible. You'll have to deliberately make your life more visible. This is a really hard lesson. Like me, you won't want to. You won't want to make your life more visible because you genuinely want people to follow Jesus. And you can't imagine the chaos if they actually followed you per se. You you won't want to do it because you are not confident, like me, that there's enough in me for others to follow Jesus by seeing. You won't want to because you know that if you make yourself more visible, you might have to talk about yourself rather than everything else. And you don't want to talk about yourself because people will misunderstand your motives. He's going on about himself again. He seems to be always blowing his own trumpet or always talking about his failures or this, that and the other. He always talks about himself. I've had to push through that a million times. If you deliberately make your life more visible, you will have to invite people close enough to see what your life is really like. And it's a terrifying thought that you invite someone close to see the real you because surely they will judge you for the frustrations and failures and messes that they will see and they will see them and they are there. 
And so there are countless reasons why making our lives more visible is the last thing on earth we would want to do. A year or so ago, Josh started going out with Rachel. Is Josh in the room? Don't hear. This is fantastic now. He's not even here. Okay? <laughs> Rachel's not here. Like, Shh. Don't tell anyone. Okay? It'll be around the internet by lunchtime, but don't tell anyone. Okay? Shh. Josh is a fantastic Christian lad. And he starts going out with this girl who's the daughter of the minister. He's a fantastic Christian lad, so he knows what a minister is like. He's got me up there just below the Holy Spirit, yeah? I mean, it's just magnificent. The awful horror of Josh coming into our home is that I know there is only one direction his opinion of me can go. It's not a question of if, but a question of when he will go, do you know, he's a plonker just like the rest of them. <laughs> and he's an intelligent lad, so 30 seconds in, he sussed it. I'm rumbled. And to be honest, it's a great relief to be rumbled, because I can't live up to that expectation, and neither can you. Deliberately make your life more visible. I understand why you won't want to. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross every day and follow. This for me is a painful cross to follow. It changes so much. It affects the way I talk with people about my life, especially my failures. It affects the way I use Facebook and Twitter every single day. It affects who I spend my time with and why. It affects the volume of people in my home. It affects the way we live, Kerry and I as a couple. It affects the way we parent. It affects the way we behave as a family. Deliberately make your life more visible. But I'm a private person, Simon. I, I understand that. I, I'm, I'm way more private than you think I am. But I'm an introvert, Simon. I, I, don't, I don't like all this stuff with others. <laughs> I'll introvert you out amongst the best of them, believe me. I've got shame in my heart. I, I, I'm scared to let people close. Hey, come on. Do you think there's not shame in my heart, our hearts? We've all got shame in our hearts all got ugly things in our hearts that we've allowed Jesus to deal with. Take up your cross daily and follow me. And do you know the most amazing thing? So I said, you don't need to be a perfect model, but you need to be a living one. And the most amazing thing is, is that if you do that, people around you will become inspired and they will learn by your successes and others will be humbled in the presence of your failures and learn from them also. I fully accept that when you allow people close, some people will misuse that, and they will trample over your failures and your 
frustrations and your mistakes. And that's a very painful thing. Take up your cross. But many people, many people will be humbled by your failures and they will learn from them. What better legacy than people learning from your success and from your failure? Hello? What a brilliant thing to give your life to that others might stand on the foundations that you have laid in real life, that you might let others climb on your shoulders. Will you let people into your life close enough to follow you? Our lifestyles will have to change. We are highly personal and individualistic. The culture has bred us that way. So most of us are separated by all kinds of things from most other people. But then, hey, when we became Christians, we said we'd give Jesus everything, didn't we? Even the culture that has been built around us. You know, can you imagine the change in lifestyle for Elijah? He's had a tent for one for decades. Think about it, a tent for one. Wherever he puts his stuff, it's still there. He's got it all laid. It's perfect. Decades later, he moves into a tent for two. After six days, Elisha's up late at night on Facebook. Elisha's left his stuff all over the place. Elisha's this, that, and the other. He won't shut up over breakfast. Elisha's lost his socks and borrowed Elijah's. You know, four or five days in, Elijah is going, Elisha, if you don't get out of my face, I'm going to kill you. And he goes, God, you've called this young man who's all over the place that I might pour my life into him. Give me more grace. Give me more heart. Let me draw him closer, not push him away. Elisha, if you do that, I think one more time. No, no, sorry, God. You draw him close, not push him away. Take up your cross, deny self, follow. And you'll have to begin to believe that you have something worth following. That's rock hard for some of us. Rock hard. Jesus can help us with that. And if your life isn't worth following, then you've got to do something about that. I want to say two things in a kind of elongated closing. Honest? 20 years ago, I would have said I'll just be a couple of minutes. And I know I won't, so I'll just be... There we go. There are two aspects of the discipling relationship, the following relationship, Elijah and Elisha, that I just want to draw out here. There's loads, but just two for this morning. And we can view them from both ends. You see, everyone is called to be an Elijah pouring into an Elisha, and everyone's called to be an Elisha looking up and receiving what an Elijah would give us, yeah? So everyone's a leader and a follower. A sheep and a shepherd, yeah? Just depends which way you're looking. Yeah? Okay. <laughs> Come on. Come on, just say yes. First characteristic of the cycle of relationship, look at it from both ends, right? The attitude of a servant. The attitude of servanthood or of a servant. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his Servant, if you want to stand on someone's shoulders, if you want to learn what they have got, serve them. 
I don't mean serve their office. I don't mean serve their responsibility. I don't mean organize life so that you get on in whatever the organize. I just serve those people. Serve them. Serve them. Jesus said a really interesting thing, didn't he, towards the end of his life. He said to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, but now I call you friends, okay? So what's Jesus saying? He's saying, you disciples, you started off in the mode, in the medium of being a servant. You learnt as a servant. That was the attitude, the context, the way the, the relationship panned out in the beginning. I no longer call you servants, and we'll get to that in a moment. Serve. There's a story, and I'm going to say it now, even though I don't really know it, because I'm hoping one of you will recognize it, or perhaps someone who listens to this online will recognize it and remind me where I got it from so I can get the story right. So there's a famous potter. I think it's a potter. I think it's even a Japanese potter. Makes some ceramic stuff. Japanese. Say, so someone knows. Where's it from? The book we got at home. Boom! This is even in the family. Fantastic. Excellent. That's way, way better than I anticipated. This is, this is slightly awkward, isn't it? Just goes to show I don't preach my whole sermon in front of my wife before I come on a Sunday morning for which she's very grateful. So there's this Japanese potter, that's right, isn't it? Okay? And, and um, there's an advert somewhere, whatever, um, for, for someone to come and help him, and, and uh, a girl, I think it is, from another culture, another country, uh, who's desperate to learn the skill of pottery, goes and spends a year with this genius. And uh, this genius says, I want you to make the tea. I want you to sweep up the floor. I want you to clean up the table after me. She said, this is okay for a few days. I can get on with this. Soon I'll be able to have a go on the potter's wheel. A month goes by, and I want you to make the tea. I want you to serve up. I want you to sweep up. I want you to help those guests. I want you to... Six months in, really frustrated. Seven, eight months in, getting quite cross. The end's in sight. I'll live this out. This is not the year that I planned. A year later, she gets back home, and she gets to the wheel that she hasn't touched for 12 months, and she begins with her hands to mold the clay, and suddenly she realizes that something remarkable has happened. In her position of serving, that humility, that posture of learning, she's imbued all kinds of things she had not understood, and she began to make pottery in the image of the genius. And you can find that story in a book that's in our house. So. <laughs> you see, when we are serving, it gets our heart in the right place. You won't learn diddly squat if you're not humble, will you? If you think you know it all, you're not going to learn anything. But when you say, look, I, I, I don't know all this stuff, and I'm going get, to get stuck in here, and I'm going to serve. I've noticed that people who choose to serve me, or us as a couple, or us as a family, are, are the ones that it's really or much easier to influence to disciple. Something about that dynamic. So, who are you serving? Who are you serving? Who are you allowing the influence to wash over, their influence to wash over you? But notice the change. Notice the development in the relationship. Years later, we get to the second passage. Years later, there's a whole sermon in that. Years later, when is the time to pour your life into somebody? At the end of your life, when you're passing on? No, right now. In the middle of Elijah's life, he pours into Elijah. Years later, lots of time has passed. And Elijah is about to die. And ultimately, the mantle is passed on to Elisha. Listen to what Elisha 
cries. Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father. But, but I thought, but I thought he was the servant. Didn't it say that he was the servant? The journey of discipling, the journey of the disciples' relationship is to move from servant to friends. Remember, that's what Jesus said. But here, it's family. Exactly the same with Jesus. Before the Passover meal, Jesus said to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. And then he said, come away with me. And they shared the family meal, the Passover. Servants, friends, family. As you get closer, the influence grows. Your ability to help people increases. Jesus called his disciples from servants to friends, ultimately to family. It's only family that is close enough to really see you. If people are going to learn, they have to see you. It's only family that's close enough for people to really see you. And suddenly it makes sense why Jesus called the disciples to create a family and to go and create other family relationships. And there are two key images in the New Testament about discipleship. The one is from Jesus and the other is from Paul. And as you would expect, they brilliantly mesh what we read in Elijah and Elisha. Isn't that remarkable? The Bible from beginning to end. People who say the Bible's boring, dull, doesn't make sense, haven't read it. Most amazing thing on the planet. Two key images. Jesus talks about following. He says to these young disciples, I want you to come and I want you to follow me everywhere I go and you will learn to be like me. Paul doesn't use that language of following and discipleship in the same way. He uses different language. This is what Paul says to say the same thing. 1 Corinthians 4 verse uh, 15. Uh, here it is. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Guardians. It's a particular cultural word, the pedagogue. In Greek culture, where Paul is ministering, you would invite a teacher into the family to teach the kids from two, three, right up until they were the age 12. And the pedagogue, the teacher, would give the children lots of information, classical Greek language, all that stuff. Information about life. Then, at the age of 12, you would be released from the teacher, and if you were a girl, you would go and stand at your mother's shoulder and watch and learn. As she managed the household, she looked after the household business, as she did the cooking, as she oversaw hospitality, as she made the business of family run. If you were a man, boy, age 12, you would go and you would stand on the shoulder of your father and you would watch his trade. You would learn the father's trade as you stood at his shoulder, as you followed him 
around. Paul says, look, in Jesus you've got loads of guardians, pedagogues, loads of teachers. There's loads of people who will give you a lecture or a sermon. Loads of people who will write a book or make a video. Loads of people who will draw you a diagram or prepare a web page. Information, information. But what you need is a father. What you need is a father. Not another minister, a preacher or a teacher, they're two a penny. But short of fathers. Letting people into your life, as Paul was describing, as Jesus modelled, is hugely costly and demanding. I understand the vulnerability, the exposure, the grace and the humility that it requires. And I've seen Paul's verse in a totally different light. I'm humbled by a man who would say, imitate me. I'm letting you right in. You can see it all, the guts, the ugliness. You can see it all. Who, who are those people? And when you think of your Elijah, are you adopting the biblical posture of serving? And when you think of your Elishas, how close will you let them come? How close will you let them come? 888,246 poppies were placed around the Tower of London in remembrance of 888,246 soldiers that lost their lives. Men who said, we've got this great gift. We've been given this great freedom. We will lay down our lives to multiply this gift into subsequent generations. And so Jesus says of us, you've got this great gift. Will you lay down your life to ensure it gets multiplied into many generations? Will you? Will we? Let's pray.